So we are in the book of Hebrews, and we finished about halfway through chapter 6 last time. Just to sort of recap, the book of Hebrews is obviously written to Hebrews, and it is written to people who are assumed to know the scriptures. So unlike Paul, who has the Gentile franchise and is writing to dumb Gentiles who don't know nothing and has to explain a lot of basic stuff, the writer of Hebrews doesn't explain a lot of that stuff. He just cites it and plows right along. So what this is designed to do is to explain to Hebrews why Yeshua is the Messiah, and he's doing it entirely from the Hebrew Scriptures. starts off and he explains that Yeshua, as the Son of God, is the heir of God. Then he goes and explains that Yeshua as the Son of God, is higher than other heavenly beings. Then the next thing he does is explains that Yeshua as a man is our brother. And because he's our brother and the heir of God, we also have an inheritance. So the next thing he does is explains faith, that in order to enter the Sabbath rest of God, you have to have faith. Now, the thing that he introduced, he's introduced it twice now, and this will be the third time, I believe, is the priesthood of Messiah after the order of Melchizedek. He's sort of dipped in and out of it, and what we'll get tonight is the bulk of it and some more detailed justification, if you will. Last time, in talking about priesthood according to Melchizedek, the emphasis there was that he, being a human like us, and having been tempted like us, and having experienced death like we do, is able to sympathize with us as he deals with us. It is the case that having been through the entire experience, if you will, of life in the flesh and death in the flesh, as he then is going to deal with us in judgment and so forth, he's able to do it from a position of sympathy, as opposed to simply being cold and analytical. The other thing that is said, obviously, is that Yeshua, being a child of Mary, who is human, is also human. And since God gave humans dominion over the place at the creation, and that dominion has never been revoked, in order for Yeshua to have dominion, he also must be a man. Hence, the birth as a human. So that's sort of where we are tonight as we step off. Now chapter 6, actually starting back in 511, he starts upgrading them just a little bit for not understanding this without explanation. He says, you guys ought to be teaching scripture. You ought to be teaching this stuff yourself. I shouldn't have to explain all this to you, but I do. So let's pick it up now at verse 9 in chapter 6, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. The speaking in this way is, guys, you should understand this. I shouldn't have to explain the basics to you. Now he's softening it and saying that having said that, he does feel confident that they are in fact going to be sure of the better things. Verse 10. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work 
and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So one of the big deals in this entire book is the idea of inheritance. Now, inherit the promises. We're going to talk about promises and oaths, and I was very careful to look them up today to make sure that I could elucidate the difference. And notice that it's inherit the promises. Now, there's two uses of the word promise in the English language. One is a verb and the other one is a noun. Promise as a verb is the act of assuring somebody of something. Promise as a noun is something that is expected. So I have the promise of an inheritance. So my inheritance then is the promise that I am going to get. In this next section here that we're going to read, promise is being used as a noun. It's important to get that distinction because otherwise you'll get confused because we're going to do promises and we're going to do swearing and we're going to do oaths. And if promise is a verb, then promise and an oath are very similar. And it's very hard to disambiguate what's being said in this next paragraph. Verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So the promise, then, is descendants and blessing. That is the promise. That is the thing that is being offered. God swore to do that. And since there wasn't anybody higher than himself that he could swear by, in other words, there's nobody above God, so he had to swear by himself. Swear upon himself is perhaps a better way to say that. Verse 15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. So he did get an heir, Isaac. He, however, did not get the land. The land doesn't get given to him until much later, until after the exodus. So he got part of the promise, which is an heir, but he didn't get the rest of the promise, which is land. But notice that it says, having patiently waited. So the point is, he had faith that he was going to get the promise. He waited patiently, and he saw at least the down payment on it, which was an heir. Again, you've got to recognize promise as a noun in, in, in all of this. All right, so let's pick it up at 15 again and rip through to 16. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. There's only one being involved here, and that's God. God made the promise, and God swore an oath. Where did he swear the oath? Sinai. Look at it again. Pick it up at 16. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. Well, we have a problem because there's nothing greater than God. So he cannot swear by anything greater. 
So what he does is he makes an oath as final confirmation. Verse 17 now. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, who are the heirs of the promise? The folks who were standing at Sinai. Abraham waited patiently, and he received the promise. So now God is reassuring the descendants of Abraham, the heirs, and so he does that with an oath. An oath is a promise to perform. And so for God then to swear an oath by himself, or upon himself, if you will, because there's nothing else to swear by, you have now two things. You have the promise that was made and given to Abraham, and then you have the oath which is given at Sinai. This is all Old Testament. In Old Testament, God the Father is center stage. Gospels, God the Son is center stage. After the resurrection, God the Spirit is center stage. So all of this argument is based on God the Father being center stage. Because what we're trying to do is establish God the Son. That's the purpose of the letter. You can't assume Yeshua is God the Son without proving it. And that's the purpose of this letter, is to prove that that's who he is. So now, let me pick it up at verse 18. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Yeshua has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What he said is, Abraham had the promise. He received the promise at the end of his life. The promise was then confirmed with an oath at Sinai to the heirs of Abraham. Now we, the people who are reading this letter, who are also heirs of Abraham and heirs of the promise and heirs of the oath at Sinai, we can now take comfort in that. So now we're going to dip back into Melchizedek. This is the third time he's been mentioned. We've been talking about history. We've been talking about what the Hebrew people have as their assurances. And what they have is that they're heirs of Abraham. They are descendants of Abraham. They have the promise that Abraham has from God because they are, in fact, many of them living in the land. They also have the oath that was sworn at Sinai. So now verse 18 again. So that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. And the hope is the promise. We have, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. We're not entering behind the curtain. The hope is where Yeshua has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. So Yeshua has gone behind the curtain as a forerunner for us. Our hope also goes behind the curtain. In other words, we have the hope that we can go into the presence of God. That's the hope. 
So where Yeshua has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the fact that he had become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek is what allows him to enter into the holy place. He took a turn on you. I understand that. He's brought up a new subject, and now what he's going to do is he's going to go into a riff on the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek to explain how we have a hope of being able to go into God's presence. So let's get into chapter 7, and we'll unpack it as we go. All right, so now Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Verse 3, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. You all know the story of Melchizedek. Abraham rescues Lot from the eastern kings, comes back, meets Melchizedek at Salem, which is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is Yeru Shalem. That is the place where the Akedah, the binding of Isaac, takes place. And it was Yehovah Yareh, God sees. So Yareh sees Shalem peace. It's the city where you see peace. That's what the name means, and that's how it got that name. What he's saying here is in Scripture, Melchizedek just sort of pops up there. There is no reference to him before in the Bible. There is no reference after until we get to Psalm 110. So what this is saying is this is a being contrary to all of the other important actors in Scripture who has no genealogy. Because remember, the, you know, get all the begats that start in Genesis and, and go on and on and on. And every major character in the Bible has got a genealogy. And you can trace who he is, except this guy. He doesn't have a genealogy. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is, there's a reason for that. What God is saying by not having given him a genealogy is this guy conceptually just sort of comes into existence like the Son of God. He's making a literary argument saying that because the Torah doesn't give this guy a genealogy as it does to every other major player, what God is showing us here is this is a model of his Son. And furthermore, this guy is also a priest of God Most High. That's what it says back in Genesis, right? It says in Genesis, when Abraham meets him, this guy's a priest of the God Most High. So now what he's saying is, this guy Melchizedek then becomes the model for the Son of God. Now, everybody knows, I think, that the Jews' perspective is Melchizedek was Shem. Shem, who was born before the flood, son of Noah, was still alive and, in fact, outlived Abraham. So the Jews' perspective is Melchizedek was actually Shem. That's somebody that Abraham would in fact give a tithe to because he's his progenitor. So the Jews are just perfectly happy with that being Shem. Christians are not. 
So anyway, the argument that he's making here is, contrary to everybody else of importance in the Bible, this guy doesn't have a genealogy. Therefore, he is the model for the Son of God. He is also a priest of the God Most High. And now what he's going to say is the Son of God is also a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So again, 7-3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So not only do we not have a genealogy, we don't have a record of his death. He just plopped there in the middle of the scripture, and as far as we know, he continues forever. Verse 4. See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, who had the promises. We're back to the promises. So the deal here is Melchizedek received tithes from the one who had the promises of God, who is the progenitor of Israel, who is, if you will, the highest being, if, other than God, of course, in the Jewish order of things. So he gave this being tithes, and this guy blessed him. And the argument is going to be made here in a second that if he gave him tithes, he must be inferior to Melchizedek. And if Melchizedek blesses him, Melchizedek must be superior to him. Verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men. But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So, who receives tithes? The transaction of the tithe is between the giver and God. However, in the book of Exodus, God says, Huh, what am I going to do with all this stuff? i got no use for it. I'll give it to the priests. So the transaction is you give tithes to God. God has no need for the physical stuff, so what God says is, take that physical stuff that you brought to me and instead give it to the priest because he's doing stuff that I have called him to do. He doesn't have land of his own, and so forth. That's in the Torah. Start with verse 7. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is later testified that he lives. Who is the one that is later testified that he lives? God. Or Yeshua. Yeshua is God. So same being. Verse 9 then. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Did everybody understand what we have set up with Melchizedek. We have set up a priest of the God Most High. We have set up a superior to Abraham who is able to receive tithes from Abraham and give blessing to Abraham. And so he is superior 
to all of the rest of the Hebrews because Abraham is superior to all of the Hebrews being their father. That's what's been set up here. So now down to verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for any other priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. We have now established that there are two orders of priesthood. There's the order of Melchizedek, and there's the order of Aaron. And the previous paragraph has established the priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. Now verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. So according to the law, the Torah, the priesthood is after the order of Aaron, and priests after the order of Aaron must be male descendants of Aaron himself, and they are the only ones who are authorized to be priests. So, if we're going to have another order of priesthood, we need a law change because there's no provision in the law for any other kind of a priest except descendants of Aaron. Verse 13, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. But it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. So if we're going to the Torah to figure out who priests are, we are not going to find anybody from the tribe of Judah that is mentioned as a priest. 15. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So what he's saying is Melchizedek has become a priest not on the basis of the Torah, but on the basis of having demonstrated an indestructible life. Remember, we started off with this riff. No father, no mother, no genealogy, no beginning of days, no end of days. We spent a long time on that. So now what he's saying is, uh, okay, this guy is a priest, he said so in Genesis when he was introduced, he's a priest, and no mention of anybody from Levi being a priest, so this guy is a priest because he has demonstrated that he is indestructible. So now what he's doing is he's doubling back to Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, this is David speaking now, so the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely in the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is a descendant of David. This is not David himself. Verse 18. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced 
through which we draw near to God. So now what he's saying is we have had to have a change in the law in order to get another priesthood. And what he's going to say is that the law we now have is superior to the one we had before. And by the way, the better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Remember we talked about the hope going into the Holy of Holies? That's on the basis of this change in law. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So the idea there is a priest, according to the order of Aaron, became a priest simply by being a son of Aaron. He just had to be anointed. God said, Aaron, you're going to be my high priest. Your sons after you are going to be my high priests. So once it came time to anoint a high priest, he just oiled him up, did a sacrifice, and he launched off. There was no oath required. Melchizedek, however, or Yeshua, is made a priest through an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So you have an oath now that has established Yeshua as a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And who, by the way, established Aaron as a priest? God. Who is establishing Melchizedek as a priest? God. Same being. 22. This makes Yeshua the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now remember the rift we went through with Melchizedek. How did Melchizedek get to be a priest forever? By not dying. Remember it says no birth, no death. He, he never was born, he never died. Yeshua is a priest after that order by oath of God. Melchizedek was not established as a priest by an oath of God, at least not in Scripture. He is established as a priest forever by having this literary artifact where he has no genealogy, no birth, and no death. So as far as the Bible is concerned, he's just sort of floating along forever. So verse 26 now in chapter 7. For it is indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So what he's saying is the law was given at Sinai, and that set up the Aaronic priesthood. The son and the oath came later. It's like an amendment, if you will, that God made to the Torah. And what he did is he appointed his son to be a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Whereas the priests in the Torah have to bring sacrifices daily, among which they have to bring sacrifices for themselves. They themselves have need of the sacrificial system because on Yom Kippur, for example, 
the high priest brings a sacrifice for himself and his household. And once that sacrifice is acceptable, he is then capable of turning around and bringing a sacrifice for the whole nation. And he has to do this periodically because being a man, he is mortal, which means that he dies and another guy has to take his place, who is also a sinful man. He has routinely required to bring sacrifices for his own cleansing. What it says here is Yeshua does not have that problem. First off, he is now immortal, so he is able to continue in his priesthood without having to have someone descend from him to take over the mantle after his death. He becomes a priest after his death, and the next thing we're going to get into is the fact that he is bringing his own blood as a sacrifice, and that has to happen once for all. And he's bringing it into the temple in the heavenlies instead of the temple on earth. This is legalese. And what you're dealing with is you are dealing with the deed, the ownership, and the rulership of the earth. And what is being established here in legal form is the fact that Yeshua qualifies to be the ruler of the earth, qualifies to be the high priest, and it is being demonstrated with legalese because it has to be airtight. It's not straightforward stuff, and it's going to get worse, by the way. Shut